to Sausage of Science, everyone. This is Chris. It is like take 17 from for, for myself, but you don't know this because we've done an amazing and eloquent job of editing the podcast, I'm sure, by now. So uh, I'm solo today. Kara is on a Chicago Transit Authority train on her way back to South Bend, sent me some questions, and I am here to talk with Rachel Anim, who is a PhD candidate at Binghamton University. She has a MA in biological sciences, an MA in anthropology, and she is the Clifford D. Clark Diversity Fellow there at Binghamton and works in the Binghamton University lab focused on lactation and breastfeeding. And she was one of the two student awardees at this year's Human Biology Association meeting. She received the Phyllis Embolith Award for the effects of milk cortisol on immune responses to in vitro bacterial stimulation. And I also went back and I found a paper from last year in the Journal of Human Lactation that she is on with Kathy Wander uh, and, a, and a crew of people entitled In Vitro Stimulation of Whole Milk Specimens, a Field-Friendly Method to Assess Milk Immune Activity. And uh, Rachel is here with us. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you for having me. How are you? Pretty good. It's Monday, so we are trying to plow through this week. <laughs> we are having a Monday, are we not? Yes, we are. <laughs> well, as you know, we open up every show by uh, asking folks about themselves. It, the riff is we're here to investigate how the sausage of the science is made, but we want to start by understanding how the researcher who does that science is made. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you ended up at Binghamton, and what got you interested in milk and lactation research? Yeah, so I was, I'm originally from Brooklyn, born and raised. Um, when I was younger, I always had an affinity for biology, and I ended up doing really well in the New York State Regents that we have there in high school. And so when I was applying to universities, I was like, you know what, I'm really going to make this stick. This is going to be my focus when I get to college. And so when I got to Binghamton University, which is where I did my undergrad and my master's in bio and now the MA PhD, I decided that I was gonna you know, focus on biological sciences as a major. And I had a concentration in cell and molecular biology. Then after I got my bachelor's degree, I still had a thirst for knowledge. And I decided that I wanted to pursue a master's in biology, like you said, but unfortunately my program wasn't really research-based. It did, however, provide me with, you know, like additional context in biology. So I was able to take courses like stem cell bio, animal physiology, I had a course in bioethics and biotechnology, just to name a few, but these really helped to begin transitioning my knowledge from more of a micro level to more of a macro understanding of human biology, because I really just got tired of looking at cells all the time. So I decided after that, that, you know, like I, I realized that I always had a passion for infants. I liked babies a lot. I still do, which is kind of why I wanted to go into this field that I'm in now. And I was also really interested in the epidemiology of pediatric infectious diseases, as well as public health. And I wanted to take what I had learned from my years in biology and apply it to humans as a whole, which led me to apply for the MAPHD program in biological anthropology here. Um, while I was completing my requirements for the master's portion of the program. I took a lot of different courses like human biological variation and stress chronobiology taught by some of the greats that we have here, like uh, Dr. Michael Little and Gary James, who are and were, unfortunately, with his passing on my PhD committee. And so these courses really provided me with the 
background and the foundation that I needed to have a degree in anthropology because this was really my first encounter with it, to be honest. And then as for how I got into milk and lactation research, like I said, I've always really been interested in infants. I really love babies. And so I wanted to explore babies. What kind of communists <laughs> would, would say, yeah, I don't really like babies, but I do this work. No offense to communists yeah, everywhere. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I have a lot of friends who are just like, you know what? I don't know how you do what you do every day because I am not here for babies at all. And I'm like, give me all the babies. I am happy to see them all the time. Um, so I was really interested in their disease risk and their overall health, especially since they're altricial and largely dependent on their parents for survival when their moms were food and provisioning. So when time came for me to decide on my thesis topics for the MA portion of the degree, I remember thinking to myself that like, I wasn't going to focus on milk. This is not going to be what I'm going to spend my entire dissertation studying. But milk seemed at that time to be, you know, the happy medium where I can get to study infant health, you know, infant outcomes, and really all that what makes, you know, an infant an infant. It's basically in milk. Milk has so many different things besides just nutrition. And so I was really fascinated with that. And I also found out that cortisol is in milk. And I was like, well, that's a little strange. Why is there a stress hormone in milk? You know, what benefit could we possibly have for, for stressing out our babies? And so here I am several years later, still studying milk. <laughs> which I'm really happy doing, but you know, it worked out that way. It's fascinating. And I want, I'm definitely going to circle back around to the cortisol and milk question. Cause I have, I have really the same question, but I'm as someone who lived in Brooklyn for 20 years, someone uh, I'll say, I'm, I'll say I'm stuck in Alabama and I missed the hell out, out of New York. How has uh well, we're, we're in Brooklyn. We were talking about this uh, in between takes. Uh, are you from, and how do you like Binghamton? Yeah, so it's really hard to describe it for people who aren't from Brooklyn, but, but you are. So I say Canarsie, but then people from Brooklyn say it's not really Canarsie. Um, I'm right in the middle of everything. So I am about five minutes from Brooklyn College, which is where I had my high school graduation. Nice. I'm also about 10 minutes away from Bensonhurst, which is mm. where I went to high school. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, Bishop Carney, which apparently is no longer in business. <laughs> and then I'm also about five or 10 minutes away from King's Plaza. So like right in the middle of everything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for, for listeners, uh, you often indulge us for a second. Kara waxes poetic about Michigan because so many of our guests are from Michigan and you have, a, uh, I'll call it a pedigree, you have a great pedigree because it, you, you just listed a bunch of people, you know, RIP Gary James, we did an episode on him last year when he passed, but Gary has been, a, you know, central member of HBA, Michael Little, central member of HBA. So you're a central member of, of HBA in, in my estimation, but I don't get to talk about Brooklyn a whole lot and going to Brooklyn College. So to me, that's really cool. And I can completely imagine all of that. Thank you. I, uh, I, I don't meet a lot of people from Brooklyn up here. A lot of Long Islanders, um, not a lot of Brooklyn people. And so I am happy to meet you virtually. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so weird. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do when I lived there was to get the neighborhoods of Brooklyn, that big book you see at Barnes and Noble on it, on my bike and ride around and explore. So I know those neighborhoods and I'll shout out to another podcast. One of my two favorite podcasts lately uh, are the Bowery Boys, which is all about sites in New York. And I really, really miss being able to dive into the history of New York. And, you know, I don't know, you're, you're not there right now. You're, you're in Binghamton and it has an amazing history as well. But um, Carrie, you, you just, you're not here to <laughs> endure this, but um, I'm having my moment. Yeah, I, I love Brooklyn. I mean, uh, I always say to my family, I wouldn't, if I didn't, if I wasn't born in Brooklyn, I 
probably wouldn't want to live here just because how you know busy it is all the time but I love Brooklyn like that's Binghamton to me is the complete opposite of that and that it gives me peace of mind when I'm not around the hustle and bustle of the city uh so I enjoy Binghamton also especially in the summers when nobody is here (laughs) yeah no I I, we we ended up moving upstate to New Paltz area and I did my degree in Albany so I know the the need to get out of New York while while being close to it but let's 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 switch to what we're here for so I want to just really quickly back up to the I call it the golden year of 2021 it's it's a joke (laughs) it's when your paper came out Uh, Kathy Wander uh, is the first author on the paper that I mentioned and I think it's about the methodology that you use. So I, I mentioned it in the introduction, uh, but I'll say it again. In vitro stimulation of whole milk specimens, a field-friendly method to assess milk immune activity, and it was published in the Journal of Human Lactation. So I'm guessing that this was the development of the method that you use. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Could you tell us about uh, what in vitro stimulation of whole milk specimens is? Like, what are you doing in that method? What can we learn from it? And then where did this milk come from that you're that you're experimenting with? Um, so this project actually began a little bit before I was active in lab work. Um, I was still getting my footing in anthropology at the time at its early stages. But when I finally joined, I was working with a few other undergraduates and graduate students. Some of the graduate students basically spent a good portion of their internships trying to do several iterations of this protocol. I want to say it was between 30 and 50 different tries just to see which one was going to be the best one. While I was more so involved with specimen collection and laboratory analysis, which was a really bite-sized portion compared to my peers, because again, I was still adjusting to the department. Dr. Wander is really great in that she has her hands in so many different projects and so many different facets that it just, it really makes her really versatile in terms of all the things that she is capable of doing. Her her mind is like a wonderland. So just to give like a little bit of background, because again, this project was designed to analyze the milk immune system, which is comprised of very generally speaking, the innate and adaptive immunity. So when we have innate immune systems, we think about it in the sense that the innate immune system of milk supplements an infant's underdeveloped immune system. It also helps with protecting the mucosal lining of the gut and, you know, which helps in terms of protection against infectious diseases. And then we have adaptive immunity, which is kind of the opposite of that in the sense that it allows moms to be able to share their immunological memory, so to speak with their infants, which is likely a reflection of the, like the locally prevalent threats uh, to health that are going on in the area. And so that's kind of what the immune system of milk entails. Um, it also has like various different um, components like, you know, immunoglobulins, leukocytes, and cytokines, which all play their own role in immune defense. So when it comes to the methods paper that we were working on, we really wanted to capture what the immune system of milk could do against bacteria, especially pathogenic bacteria. As kind of already alluded to, uh, immune defense is really dynamic and challenge tests, which we basically did where we exposed the specimen to different bacteria. Uh, These can be a really good measure of what the whole immune system can do. We had already had an in vitro challenge protocol for whole blood specimens that involved fairly low technology. We needed to have an incubator and you know cold storage, but there was no need for any gas canisters or ultra low freezer storage. And so we basically took this technique and updated it for milk where we combined whole milk with culture medium and some killed bacteria like salmonella, E. coli, uh, lactobacillus, and bifidobacterium, I believe. 
And so this was incubated overnight. And then we compared the immune molecules such as cytokines after incubation to the baseline levels. This ratio really helped us to generate the immune response to stimuli variables. This whole process, like I said, took several attempts, maybe between 30 and 50, uh, and it didn't work at all for the first 20 participants or so. We almost actually abandoned the entire project just because it just didn't seem like it was going to prove useful or fruitful. But this ended up, it ended up being that we needed more specimens and specimens just in general, just so that we can figure out which one was going to work better. That's really interesting because I know in the paper, it's like phase one, proof of concept. Phase two, here we did the thing. So you just gave us a view into that proof of concept, which apparently took a while and, and paid off. So that's that's really fascinating. Now, you received the Eveleth Award for the HBA talk, which is looking at cortisol and interleukin-6 and how they interact in milk in response to introduced bacteria, the ones you just mentioned. So it's kind of it, it seems counterintuitive to us that a stress hormone would be in, in milk unless it's doing something different. So could you tell us why cortisol? So actually this, this abstract was one of my master's thesis papers and is actually based on the secondary analysis of the 2021 golden year paper, as you uh, called it. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I was a little curious about cortisol's presence in milk, especially since the literature suggests that circulating cortisol levels are associated with suppressed immune systems or, you know, an increased likelihood for diseases. So it made me wonder why a stress hormone would be in milk, which is largely curated to provide infants with what they need to survive. I mean, natural selection, I feel, kind of had ample opportunity to shape milk content, you know, throughout the primate and human past. So it stands to reason that cortisol is in milk because it confers some kind of benefit. And since cortisol is in milk, we were looking to see what role it plays in the immune, milk immune system specifically. Based on the existing literature, we kind of expected milk cortisol to inhibit milk immune activity, since that is one of the immediate physiological effects of cortisol, as I previously mentioned. There's also the opposite of that, which was like inflammation and stress co-occur at the individual level. So there was also a reason to expect that there may be a positive relationship. But given the scarcity of the research examining the interface of milk cortisol uh, and the immune system of milk, we really didn't know what effect we should expect cortisol to have, if anything at all. We thought that was really interesting going forward as something to analyze. Yeah, I've, I've looked at the relationship of cortisol, C-reactive protein, and immunoglobulin A in, in response to tattooing. So I've looked at sort of the same paradigm, but in different fluids. Yeah. And we've also looked at bacteria killing activity in those. So introducing some, some live bacteria. So I I understand the principle, but I wonder, and I, and I wonder what you think about this. Like, do you think that cortisol is playing the same role in milk? Because to me, it seems like once it's in milk, it may or may not be related to stress anymore, unless the mother was stressed somehow beforehand. Is it part of the fight or flight response, do you think, or is it playing some different role? What could you find? That's actually a really good question, you know, because I wouldn't necessarily say that all cortisol activities are different. You know, we know that human milk cortisol has similar attributes to circulating cortisol, like it has diurnal patterns. So it stands to reason that cortisol may have some additional overlap in its function that remains to be explored. But in terms of flight or flight, you know, I would say that it's absolutely possible there are some differences. It's funny to me because infants, they can neither fight or flee from a situation, you know, whenever they're exposed to immediate threats to survival. So it seems likely that the importance of milk cortisol for infants isn't necessarily its immediate effect. It's more something about their long-term development, perhaps their eventual HPA access or its function 
Uh, in the long term, you know, the timing of that, we uh, use a life history approach, at least that's what I'm trying to do for my dissertation. And it's also possible that, you know, perhaps this long term effect can affect uh, infant immune defense or immune development. So this is something that I'm looking to explore for my dissertation, this immune aspect of it specifically. So you said this is this abstract was one of the papers that, that you're working on. Can you talk about some of the, the other work or where you're going with this to give us a little uh, little insight or a little preview into, into what we might hear about in the future? What we ended up finding out for this abstract was that milk cortisol was positively associated with milk immune activity. Cortisol was associated with strong, significant interleukin-6 responses to salmonella and bifidobacterium. And so salmonella no, is more... So no immunosuppression. No immunosuppression. In fact, it boosted, if anything, which was really interesting. And I thought that that would be something that was only in response to bacterial stimulation. But one of the, the variables that we analyzed was also secretory immunoglobulin A, which is a facet of the adaptive immune response in milk. And so we noticed a positive association with SIGA as well. Both of them increased with milk cortisol, which was interesting. So it kind of just seemed that, you know, it was, it was serving to boost uh, infant immunity, perhaps so, in the long term. So everything seems to be going up. Is that sort of what I'm hearing? Yeah. That's fascinating. And so what do you, what's the next piece of this? How do you continue this investigation? You know, we suggested signaling as a potential mechanism uh, or a, a potential reason, I guess, for why cortisol would be in milk. You know, much of this is kind of based on the limited research that we have in humans. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of important for us to expand our understanding of milk cortisol besides its immediate effect as a stress hormone. For me and my dissertation, I'm kind of looking to see what milk cortisol may signal to infants. So we have several facets of this project going. Um, we're looking to see whether or not maternal stress is somehow embodied in milk cortisol. And then whether or not this translates into um, an effect on the infant immune system. So we're also measuring not only milk immunity, but salivary SIGA in the infant to see what benefits it could possibly have for that. And so far, the results seem to be really promising. Um, we've seen, as for part of the preliminary results, we've seen that cortisol boosted both uh, milk immunity, so in terms of SIGA, which is what we're focusing on for adaptive immunity. And it also showed that infants that were receiving higher milk cortisol and or higher milk SIGA also subsequently had higher salivary SIGA. So it seems long-term is what it's, what it's getting at. Um, a lot of the, it was also interesting because our perceived stress scale, which is one of the uh, variables that we're looking to measure whether or not it's embodied in milk cortisol was unassociated with milk cortisol in this sample, but yet it was associated with salivary cortisol and infant salivary cortisol, which we thought was really interesting too. Whoa, wait a minute. So the mother's perceived stress correlated with not her own cortisol, but her offspring's cortisol? It correlated with her salivary cortisol and the infant's salivary cortisol, but it did not correlate with milk cortisol. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah, crazy. So. I, I always have, so, and put a pin in that, because I always have so much trouble linking perceived stress and, and getting people to think about what they're maybe, what is actually stressing them at the moment because of the way it's phrased in the past month. And uh, there's usually a disconnect between the perceived stress scale and whatever I am currently measuring. 
So, which tells me there's a methodological problem with how I'm using it. So that that's fascinating. I wonder how much time is there between the measures that you're taking of the mother's and the, the milk and then the, the child's uh, salivary immunoglobulin A, like, is there a delay? Or are they all being collected in the same visit? They're all being collected in the same visit, actually. And so what we do is we have moms um, use the salivary uh, salivettes first so that we are not, you know, contaminating infant saliva with milk cortisol. And we ask them not to consume, you know, coffee or anything, which is also known to affect cortisol levels. And so we're kind of operating under the same assumption that cortisol in milk behaves to some degree, similarly to circulating cortisol. Um, And then with the survey, you, you brought up a good point because, you know, we've been trying to figure out the survey itself is designed for a month. And so the fact that it's not associated with um, milk cortisol, we were wondering if perhaps maybe that's too short of a term for milk cortisol to really pick up on as a signal. So the argument here that we're making is that milk cortisol actually, in order to be like a, a reliable signal for infant development, it may be more beneficial for milk cortisol to actually convey long-term stressors like, like perceived discrimination and socioeconomic status, you know, maybe adverse childhood events, things like that compared to more transient, you know, hypotheses like uh, poor sleep quality or perceived stress within the past month or so. So we're trying to, you know, come across the association between short and long-term stressors and how milk cortisol plays a role in that. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering as you described that, if the mother and the offspring were having the same stressful experience of being at a a study and providing this, and if the, the child was picking up on the mother's current stress, and I, and I just think of this as from the perspective as a parent, I had one kid who would basically be oblivious to everything that was going on with us, and one kid who was so highly attuned to one of us that if we flinched, like blinked an eyelid wrong, he'd be like, what's wrong, right? So, you know, the, you know, I know there's some variation in that, but then the other piece that you mentioned that makes me think is that maybe hair cortisol or fingernail cortisol from the mother might align with the milk cortisol and help you address that question? That's possible, yeah. Um, I know fingernail cortisol and hair cortisol is designed for it to be uh, more long-term. And so mm-hmm. that, may, that may actually be something that we could address in the future. I think for now, we were trying to look more as, uh, you know, the cross-sectional data, and it just seemed that milk cortisol would be a very, it would be an easier way to go about analyzing this as this, one specific point in time, what is going on here? And then we could follow up potentially in terms of infant growth to see how that affects it, but we haven't really looked into hair cortisol uh, or fingernail cortisol. Well, that's super fascinating. Now I know um, you have a Twitter following or you have a Twitter account for your research. Uh, Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, uh, my Twitter account or the handle, I guess, is BU Breastfeeding. I basically just recruited that for, I started that for the recruiting process for my projects. Um, I'm very much an introvert and so I don't use social media often. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we will be your mouthpiece. Um, Do you you do public engagement in any way uh, with with, uh, Facebook or anything that you do want to share? At this point, no, but I will at some point, you know, when data starts to become more readily available for this project, I will be posting it on my Twitter page. And we have a Facebook page that we've also created, but again, not really using it all that much other than to, you know, to recruit, but I happily share that as well. Um, and on my Twitter page, if you click on the flyer, 
that's there, which is not necessarily my photo, but a photo of my flyer. There is my phone number and my email address, which I'm more responsive to than Twitter, but feel free to reach out that way too. Awesome. And and given that you're a, a, a doctoral candidate, you gave us a little bit of your your aspirations. But you know, now that you're in this place, you know, are you still? What what are your career goals? What do you what do you see as what's your timeline for finishing, and then what do you hope to do next? Um, I'm hoping to be done latest by next year or 2024 at the absolute latest. I kind of alluded to this earlier. I've been in school nonstop. And so my family jokes that I'm a professional student at this point. Um, but honestly, in terms of my career goals, I really like helping people. This has been a passion of mine ever since I was younger. It's part of why I've dedicated so much of my time to service, whether as a mentor or as, you know, on university committees, like our department's equity committee, or in my efforts to developing the you know, uh, inaugural mutual mentoring program that we have here for the Clifford D. Clark Fellowship that I'm a part of. And so I'd like to take this passion and apply it to a larger scale, maybe public health, you know, um, help inform some research-based public health initiatives for breastfeeding. You know, a lot goes on with maternal stress and how that affects infant outcomes. And so I think having this knowledge may help improve or at least contribute to breastfeeding initiation and continuation rates here in the U.S. Awesome. Well, you're definitely an asset to the Human Biology Human Biology Association. You're in the right place. I hope you continue to come to our meetings and participate uh, in the organization and, and, and stay involved in anthropology. Uh, when you're not anthropologizing, though, what do you do for, for fun, joy, balance, hobbies, et cetera? Do you we all we all aspire to work life balance, but none of us quite attains it. Where where are you in that pursuit? <laughs> Still struggling. <laughs> um, I like I said, I do like helping people, and so a good portion of my time last uh, up to last year was spent serving on our executive board for the anthropology graduate organization that we have here. But I am happy to say that I have retired <laughs> from that. <laughs> um, other than that, like I said, I'm working on the Clark mentoring program that I'm trying to start also. And then aside from that, I am very much an introvert. Like I said this before, I am also a couch potato. So I really like being home and, you know, it's where I can have peace of mind without having to worry about all the hustle and bustle of the outside world. And, you know, I kind of just use that as my way of decompressing. So I bake sometimes. Um, I'm also, yeah, I really like baking and I like eating. I, I, am, I enjoy trying out different recipes. Um, and then other than that, I'm also really into like, you know, just watching a bunch of TV shows as my Which, way of decompressing. This, this question is usually just our way of eliciting new shows to watch. So what are you watching? Um, so I watch Jeopardy a lot. Uh, don't judge me. No judgment. <laughs> <laughs> we all have candy I mean, in our lives. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, so Jeopardy really into like the family feuds. Um, I was watching This Is Us when that was still prevalent because who doesn't need a good cry in their lives oh. every single week? <laughs> um, and then, you know, I also watch Grey's Anatomy and, um, you know, Queen Sugar, one of my friends got me into that show. And so I'm, I've been really enjoying that as it's wrapping up its final season. Perfect. Rachel, it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for the grace that you show in handling all these technical difficulties. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, I'm not great with technology at all. So this made me feel a lot better about my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pleasure talking to you. And I know that at the last meeting you zoomed in. Hopefully I get to see you in person at the next meeting. Yes, hopefully. Thank you so much. It was great meeting you. Right on. We'll catch up about Brooklyn. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> all right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.